This is The Guardian. The National Conservatism Conference took place this week in London, with big figures on the political right lining up to voice their thoughts. I see no reason why every other country in the world should be prevented from feeling pride in itself because the Germans mucked up twice in a century. They included cabinet ministers like Suella Braverman, once again seeming to position herself as the next Tory leader. White people do not exist in a special state of sin or collective guilt. With Rishi Sunak's government still reeling from a terrible set of local election results, that leads us on to a sobering thought. Sooner or later, might the National Conservatives end up running not just the Tory party, but the UK? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the former Conservative Cabinet Minister David Gork and the Chief Leader Writer for The Observer, Sonia Soda. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about the right of the Conservative Party, the hard right, some would say, the National Conservatism Conference that has been happening in London and what it's all about. And we will sort of zoom out from there to ask the very, very big question about what that conference and the politics it reflects tells us about where the Tories might be heading. So let's talk about the, the National Conservatism Conference. The darlings of the Tory right, including the Home Secretary, Sola Braverman, Jacob Rees-Mogg, David Frost, Lord Frost, Lee Anderson and Michael Gove have all been speaking this week at a very, very uh, high-profile event in Westminster called the National Conservatism Conference. It's the second time it's happened in the UK. Um, Braverman's big speech was signed off by 10 Downing Street, reports tell us. The National Conservatism Conference and the National Conservatism Project are an offshoot of the American think tank, the Edmund Burke Foundation. The conference isn't an official Conservative Party event, but with two cabinet ministers speaking, you'd be forgiven for thinking it's a kind of major event in the Tory calendar. First question, how do you feel about it, David? As a former Conservative minister, seeing high-profile Conservatives speak of something which is quite sort of, um, I don't know what the word is really, sobering, mind-boggling, eye-catching. Well, this won't surprise you, John, to say I'm not an enthusiast for <laughs> national conservatism. Um, I'm not altogether surprised that Jacob Rees-Mogg is speaking there. I don't really understand what Michael Gove is doing uh, involved with it. But no, it represents a particular strand of politics that was on the fringes of the Conservative Party and perhaps more often to be found outside the Conservative Party. I mean, looking at it, it feels like a, a UKIP event from 10 years ago. Uh, or it feels like something from the US, or it feels like something from 50 years ago. It, it doesn't feel like the Conservative Party that I was part of. Sonia, just briefly, I wonder how you feel watching it, because things have been said um, from time to time at this conference over the last few days, which I've thought are, are acutely unpleasant. You know, To call them offensive doesn't quite do them justice, actually. It's pretty horrible stuff, Yeah, some of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, even knowing where the right of the Conservative Party is, I suppose, I found some of what's been said quite surprising. 
So really, really ultra conservative stuff, some very unpleasant anti-Semitic stuff as well. And it's so out of kilter with where the country is. I mean, I think that's the thing that you that you, you that first crosses your mind when you hear this stuff, which is that, you know, it, it really does have the feel of a 1990s kind of back to basics, but on steroids, essentially, socially conservative agenda. And that just doesn't really feel where Britain is as a country. 1990s might be a bit generous, about 60 years before, some might say, but I'll, I'll park. I'll, yeah, that's a good point, <laughs> I'll park, John. I'll, I'll park that point for now. Um, let's go into a, a few things that have been said and subjects that have been raised. It's worth noting that at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, Angela Rayner, who was standing in for Keir Starmer, called the conference a Trump tribute act and a carnival of conspiracy. Um, there is a sort of founding statement of national conservatism, which you can find very easily online, written by its prime movers in America. And that says that national conservatism wants a world of independent nations, society centred on the traditional family, big official role for Christianity, quote, which should be honoured by the state and other institutions, both public and private. It's also, as a sort of body of ideas, very, very worked up about immigration and this somewhat paranoid idea that, that immigration, along the lines that most countries experience it, somehow represents a threat to um, to a country's very existence. Let's hear a bit of what Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, said about immigration and multiculturalism when she spoke. It's not xenophobic to say that mass and rapid migration is unsustainable in terms of housing supply, public services, or community relations. Nor is it bigoted to say that we have too many asylum seekers in this country for whom we have insufficient accommodation. That absorbing more and more people means building more and more homes is another one of those unfashionable facts that the Open Borders Brigade would say means we're starting a culture war. It's not racist for anyone, ethnic minority or otherwise, to want to control our borders. David, what she was expressing there is actually the sort of centre of gravity within Conservative politics now on those issues, right? It may have sounded outlandish in places, but that's the sort of government line on immigration. Certainly that one issue, isn't it? Well it, well, it is. At least that's the, the rhetoric. At the same time, the government recognises the value of immigration to our economy and the numbers of people coming here really quite high by historic standards. In fact, very high by historic standards. And look, there is a legitimate argument to be made about you've got to have controlled immigration, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that this is being put, if you like, at the heart of what this uh, thinking, this movement is all about, uh, is something which I think is really quite revealing. What and, does it reveal? Okay, what does it reveal? Well, it, okay, she's Home Secretary, and the Home Secretary has responsibility for immigration. But the sense that wanting to focus on immigration as an issue, that this is the thing that can kind of bring together the 2019 Conservative coalition, I'm, I'm really sceptical that that is correct. But I, in a way, I can see why they're wanting to do that. They're wanting to get the people who were very excited about Brexit and wanted to get Brexit done and voted Tory in 2019 as a consequence. They're now thinking, well, Brexit isn't going to be the issue. Jeremy Corbyn isn't going to be the issue. Immigration is going to have to be the issue. So they're going to want that as a sort of big dividing line. But they're fighting a rearguard action against reality to some extent, Sonia, aren't they? Because as, as we know, any time now, the latest immigration figures are going to come out and they're going to show that the idea that Brexit marked an end to immigration into Britain is for the birds. It's not happened. In fact, the reverse has happened. 
No, absolutely. I think the next set of figures are going to show immigration at record high levels. And the reason for that, I mean, it's a mixed bag. It's obviously partly because of what's happened in Ukraine, partly because of um, refugee flows from other parts of the world. But it's partly just the economic reality, which is that we've got massive labour shortages in our economy and we're quite reliant on incoming immigration. And you've got these tensions within government where apparently for Suella Braverman, that's that's an issue, whereas the Treasury seemed to sort of have been quietly, um, quietly li- just left Letting this, uh, letting this policy kind of uh, work its magic in terms of increased um, immigrants and the impact they're having on the economy. In that sense, there is a quiet war going in, yes. going on. There's yeah. a quiet war going on within government over this issue, isn't there? Yes, yes. I think it's quiet because clearly there there is a bit of a sense that you know maybe this isn't um, Sunak's particular brand of politics, but he's certainly not stopping Suella Braverman from making it her thing and she's very much a part of his government so I think it is a quiet war it's not like the treasury are making a big song and dance about the fact that you know immigration numbers are going up and and doing lots to celebrate them but I think there has been a certain amount of permissiveness there because they realize that it's an economic necessity at the moment. I mean on the subject of economic migration Suella Braverman said one of many mind-boggling things last week was that she wanted British people to fill the gaps in the workforce as regards picking fruit are concerned. Now, I know for a fact, if you talk to anybody involved in the business of picking fruit, they will tell you that's impossible. So not only is this rhetoric offensive, it's just completely unrealistic. And yet she thinks that's the way that you enhance your chances of being the next Conservative leader. And I'll tell you another area of confusion here, which is um, you know, one way, if you want to get more British people into work, one thing you could do is more support for childcare. Uh, but Jacob Rees-Mogg is standing up saying, hold on, this extra money for childcare, that's, 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 that, that's wrong. And, and he said I, it was unconservative. Unconservative. And I think there's, you know, behind some of this is the sort of sense that, you know, mother's place is mm-hmm. at home. So, so, so the jobs are not <laughs> going to be filled by immigrants and they're not going to be filled by mothers. Okay. There you go. Okay, we are ascertaining that this uh, this brand of national conservatism doesn't make much sense up close, which is not that much of a surprise. Let's move on to what Danny Kruger, a former Cameron-era uh, conservative insider, the MP for Devizes in Wiltshire, let's hear what he said about what the conservatives, or certainly these conservatives, would call family values. The normative family, held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children, and the sake of their own parents, and the sake of themselves... This is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. (laughs) Marriage is not all about you. It's not just a private arrangement. It's a public act by which you undertake to live for someone else, for their sake and the sake of your children and the sake of wider society. And wider society should recognise and reward this undertaking. I mean, it's no surprise to hear a Conservative politician saying that necessarily. I remember the Thatcher and Major years when they were very, very hostile and offensive about single-parent families, for example. It's still here. Danny Kruger attempts to be giving it some sort of, you know, highfalutin philosophical grounding. It doesn't detract from the fact that a lot of people will find that pretty horrible to hear. 
No, totally. And I think the reason why I was still surprised was because it really did feel like the Conservative Party had genuinely moved on from some of this stuff. You know, when Theresa May said that she didn't want them to be the nasty party anymore. It was the Conservatives who brought an equal marriage. Um, So this really is striking a note that I don't think we've heard in British politics for a good sort of 20, 25 years, which is, you know, somehow the only type of uh, normative family we're celebrating is the implication is one with a mother and a father and they've got to stick together and it doesn't matter as I was saying earlier if the relationship is abusive it just doesn't seem in kilter with um, with modern Britain but also if you're really interested in child outcomes and positive child outcomes absolutely if you've got two parents it's positive if they stay together if they can have a healthy positive relationship if it's a destructive toxic relationship we know it can be really really bad for children for example if they're witnessing domestic abuse at home for example that's a really bad risk factor for poor child outcomes so this this idea that you know it's something universally to be celebrated and people who don't stick together for the sake of their kids are somehow you know a burden on society I mean it's just it's completely and utterly out of date and as you say John it's very offensive it wasn't the only thing Danny Kruger talked about he told the conference that western civilization is threatened by a new religion a mixture of, quote, Marxism, narcissism and paganism, which he said conformed to the dystopian fantasy of John Lennon. That was a reference to Imagine, the much-loved song, which uh, National Conservatism, it seems, takes extreme exception to. It's always a good idea not to get on the wrong side of the Beatles, in my opinion, if you're a politician. Danny Kruger also talked about the intelligentsia, the globalised elite, this is a bit Theresa May-esque, whose, lo- whose loyalties are to everyone and no one. Annie said, let us not retreat to the southeast to the managerial class, which some people took as a meaning, really, that despite the fact the Tories seem to be losing to the Lib Dems in places like Surrey, Surrey can stuff off. David, I don't know whether you know about Danny Kruger. Um, tell me about him. Because he said he's he said a lot of very striking things at this conference. He has said some striking things. And uh, yeah, it struck me looking at the local election results that the Conservatives were retreating from the southeast, not retreating to the southeast. So uh, I'm not quite sure where he's got that idea from. Um, look, I, I've known Danny, I mean, not not desperately well, but I've known him for quite a long time. I mean, he has always been high Tory romantic. I, I think he's always sort of liked the idea of the sort of upper class who, um, you know, are quite patrician and uh, are close to the working class with their salt of the earth values, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's kind of his, his, his view. He likes the countryside. He likes traditions. He likes, you know, old England, early Disraeli. You know, it's that type of, you know, medieval England viewed through n- nostalgia, a kind of slightly feudal view of the nation. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be honest, Danny is not naturally a politician of the 21st or 20th century. Uh, yeah, more a sort of a 15th century kind of guy. Well, possibly. Look at it. I mean, he's not he's not as mannered, obviously, as Jacob Rees-Mogg. But there is sort of something about Danny of a, of a kind of high Tory romanticism that I suspect, as Sonia says, is not quite where the British public is. OK, we will come on to the British public in due course. It's worth... Um, pointing out that the historian David Starkey on Wednesday said at the conference, the reason that the left has such ire for the Jews is jealous. They want to replace the Holocaust with slavery in order to wield its legacy as a weapon against Western culture. Another rather offensive um, outburst. Um, the National Conservatism Twitter feed uh, t- tweeted that, but then it was swiftly deleted 
Um, number 10 said Rishi Sunak would not agree with David Starkey's comments. And as regards the presence at the conference of Michael Gove and Suella Braverman, uh, ministers will speak at a range of events, said number 10. It's for them to decide which events they wish to speak at. Here's a question. Where does all this come from? I mean, I said a moment ago that a lot of this stuff, because I'm old enough to remember such things, doesn't feel that new. You know, a certain sort of conservative has always talked loudly about the so-called traditional family, Christianity, a belligerent kind of patriotism. Certain kind of conservative is always a conservative has always been hostile to immigration. Um, in certain senses, there's a sort of strong flavour of Enoch Powell, I think, about some of this. David, as a as someone who spent a long time in the conservative political family, this stuff must feel familiar to you when you hear it. Uh, yes, it does. Although the prominence now is very different from what it has been for a very long time. So there's always been a, a strand of that. Just as that, look, there, there is a strand of, of of this thinking within public opinion. I, you know, I would say it's a small part of public opinion and diminishing, but it's kind of always been there. I think why is it more prominent now? It's almost as if you know the right of the Conservative Party has won so many battles uh, within the party that where else does it go? You know, so, well, you know, it's, 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 it's got us out of the European Union, which it never thought it was going to achieve. What is there to complain about now? And, and also the point that they, they're not, you know, they don't really have anything very much to say about economics. I mean, it's quite striking listening to this conference. There's, there's not a lot about, you know, what's the economic vision. I don't think there is a shared vision there. It is much more on culture because that's kind of where they have to go. Look, I, let's not overstate this. I don't think they're about to bring down Rishi Sunak. But if there's a plausible scenario where the Conservatives lose the next general election, Rishi yeah. Sunak resigns, and then there's going to be a vote amongst the membership. And, and, and in those circumstances, this movement could be influential. That's the subject of, of part two. Sonia, it's worth pointing out that national conservatism, um, in its specific sort of organisation, what this organisation, national conservatism, what the project does, you know, it um, has bases in um, a few European countries. And at past conferences, speakers have included Giorgia Maloney, um, the Italian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, there is a lot that it shares in common with sort of European populism, and that's putting it politely. I mean, some, mm. of, some, some of the European politics I'm talking about, in my opinion, certainly blurs over into things that are inspired by, by pre-war fascism, if, mm -hmm. if not aren't fascist themselves right so there's a european element to this ironically given the fact these people are brexiteers no there definitely is and i think that's quite a sort of i think it's interesting that there are elements of the conservative party that are looking to what's going on internationally around right populism and kind of you know deciding to sort of you know when you decide to go along to a conference like this as home secretary you're making a statement and I thought that rather anodyne statement that you read out from number 10 where you know they were saying well it's completely up to ministers what they do well that's true to some extent but it's very rare I think when you're actually in government to get ministers going and speaking and sharing a platform with some people with some you know really quite spicy as you alluded to views there John and I think it's kind of it would be the it would be the equivalent of you know coming up to 2009 in the Labour government and the Labour cabinet suddenly deciding oh yeah we're going to go and share a platform with Stop the War it's sort of really on that kind of scale. Um, Rishi Sunak is in a very awkward position in relation to all this isn't he whereby um, there are aspects of it that I think he'll find quite uncomfortable not necessarily in terms of his personal views but the sense that electorally this might be quite toxic at the same time as he clearly is giving it space 
He's, you know, number 10 signed off Braverman's speech. The presence at this conference of Suella Braverman and Michael Gove, you know, is something that must have happened with number 10's say-so. And certainly on, on immigration, what has been said at this conference chimes with government policy. His politics are sort of in here somewhere at the same time as he's got one foot outside. I'm not sure I could articulate the relationship of Rishi Sunak and his politics to this. But there's more of a connection than he would probably like people to think, David, isn't there? Personally, I think Rishi Sunak's politics is largely motivated by his views on economics. And that's why he went into politics. I think he is more socially conservative than his predecessors. But, you know, is that the thing that really sort of drives him in the morning? Uh, no, I don't think it is. I, 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 I don't think this particularly excites him. Also, in tone and temperament, this is, this is not Rishi Sunak. But he is not in a strong enough position to be able to lay down the law. He has to kind of keep the right on side. I suspect he thinks that Suella Braverman is going to resign at some point, and but he's not going to want to precipitate that. I, I think he's a victim of of the of his inherent weakness. I don't think it's about weakness of personality. It's just the weakness of his position within the Conservative Party. You know, having come to the leadership in a particularly peculiar way without the endorsement of the membership. He has to tread carefully. He picks his fights, and he doesn't doesn't pick fights on on these cultures. We should talk a little bit about about how many people out in the real world national conservatism might speak for. If you listen to someone like Lee Anderson, who's now a deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, who represents Ashfield, an old coalfield seat in the East Midlands, he would tell you that the sort of things you hear from this National Conservative Conference, perhaps not with the same vowel sounds, right, but nonetheless are the sort of things you would hear on the streets of, a, of his constituency. Now, I don't actually think that's true, but that's the way they—that's the way that they present this sort of politics. It's, and that, I suppose, is an interesting question, isn't it? Is this as fringe as people like us would like to think, or does it speak for quite a few more people than that? I think there's a bit of wishful thinking going on there. So I think if you take a particular issue like immigration, for example, and public attitudes on immigration, in, the salience of immigration goes up and down and the extent to which people feel positive and negative about immigration sort of goes up and down depending on what's happening. But very little of anti-immigration sentiment, if you look at the data, if you look at detailed polling done by organisations like Hope Not Hate, is driven by fear of the other or by you know what might be considered to be racist sentiment actually the bulk of the public are pretty pragmatic on immigration they accept the need for it they want us to have control over it as a country and they accept the need you know th that it's needed economically and if you make the case for immigration in that sense I think you can I think you can win it actually if you make it in those terms I mean the other thing is that although they take against liberalism as they would see it as this great villain right um, in the so-called red wall People live out liberalism um, as a matter of daily experience, right? There are lots and lots of perfectly happy single-parent families who, who live in red wall places, you know. There are lots and lots of gay people. A lot of the things that people at this conference or the kind of people at this conference would tell you were indicative of a society that is going to the dogs and must somehow be rescued are just part of people's everyday lives. And that's one of the reasons why I think this whole thing feels so awkward. Yeah, I, I think in a way it's it's almost sort of worth disentangling some of the issues. So they're trying to do the whole faith, family, and flag agenda. Yeah, and I agree with you that doesn't that doesn't work. There are particular issues where the public is is probably more socially conservative than most politicians, including 
quite a lot of conservative politicians. I take Sonia's point on immigration. It's it's a little bit more complicated than it first appears. But you know, you look at the polling on, say, the small boats. Yeah, quite a lot of the public are absolutely behind the government on that. If you look at things like crime and punishment, you know, quite a lot of the public would be much harder, much tougher than any of the political parties. But as, but as Sonia has said, um, nonetheless, if you presented um, the issue of immigration to the public as something that threatens our, our most basic sort of moral fibre as a country, which is the kind of rhetoric you hear from people like this, that would sound like fanaticism. Yeah, the vast vast majority of people. And similarly, if you said that the key to restoring uh, British society and its sort of well-being and health was was the traditional family, and we have to get back to a, a man and a woman, and they must stay together for life and all that, again, people would think quite rightly, in my opinion, they were listening to something quite strange. That yeah. remains the case. That I agree with that. I think there's sort of three problems with it as an agenda. One is there are other parts of it that don't excite people. So all the kind of religious stuff that yeah. doesn't work. Secondly, how salient is this? So we can kind of talk about you know immigration and so on, but but actually what is probably going to matter at the next general election is living standards and public services and so on. And then the third point is your point, John, which is people might hold certain views, but they might also be suspicious of politicians who actually share the same views, but they still come across as a being a bit odd and fanatical. Uh, and you know, this was something that I think the Conservative Party found in opposition after 97 is that, you know, when conservatives said, well, we think this, the public seemed to agree. But then when the public heard conservatives say it, they thought, well, this is a bit odd. You know, these, we, we don't expect you to agree with us. Um, so, so it doesn't, I don't think it works. Finally, it's worth pointing out that when Michael Gove pitched up at the National Conservatism Conference, he sort of gently read them the riot act, didn't he? In the sense that he said that so-called culture war issues were not really going to help the Conservatives out electorally, and the centre ground remains defined largely by economics and the state of public services, which is not what any of those people gathered there, or hardly any of them, wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think he's happens to be absolutely right which is that the next election is going to be about the economy so there is this wing of the conservative party that will do anything to try and drag it away from the economy because that is not looking like it's going to go too well for the conservatives at the election and parties do this when they lose a general election they sort of tend to retract into themselves and become more radical and more extreme it's because they've got a smaller parliamentary party you know it tends to be people who are a bit more adherent to the sort of core of um you know the, the party's quite radical sort of underpinnings i suppose but that normally happens after a general election yeah, but yeah. we're literally seeing this happen <laughs> before the Conservatives have even lost. And I think it's partly because it's been such a torrid time. There have been so many changes in leadership. And, you know, some people in the Conservative Party, I think, look at Rishi Sunak and think, well, this isn't a platform that I was voted on, you know, on in 2019. And, you know, here's an opportunity to try and drag the Tory party my way. But it, it really is quite extraordinary to watch, given that they're still in government. Yeah, completely. We will pause for a moment. And when we come back, we're going to look at the prospect of Suella Braverman, who we have mentioned endlessly over the last 15 or 20 minutes, becoming Tory leader and perhaps Prime Minister. Welcome back. There are lots of people 
that one can speak to now who say that should Rishi Sunak fail to turn around the Conservative Party's pretty abysmal performance in the recent local elections and lose the next election, the next leader of the Conservative Party is likely to be either Suella Braverman or Kemi Badnock. In other words, the kind of politics we've heard this week, notwithstanding its eccentricity, offensiveness and all-round rumness, stands a very good chance of taking over the Conservative Party. Um, I mean, Suella Braverman is clearly on manoeuvres. She's not making long speeches at events like this for nothing, right? And the sort of views that she has expressed and other people express at events like this plays very well, it seems to me, with a large share of what remains of the Conservative Party membership. And they're the people who will decide. Yes, I'm afraid you're right on 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 all those points. I mean, she's clearly on manoeuvres. Um, and, I mean, it is quite remarkable how blatantly she is doing that whilst being a cabinet minister. But it is worth remembering, she announced that she thought Boris Johnson should go and that she was going to run for the leadership while she was still a serving minister. Um, so she's pretty sort of shameless. I mean, I think it's possible for Rishi Sunak to hold on if there's a narrow defeat at the next general election, because he would have clearly done remarkably well to have got it to a, a narrow defeat. But if it's anything worse than that, it's hard to see how he stays on. Suella Braverman has got a very good chance, I would have thought, of being the two names that go forward to the party membership. And unless something fairly dramatic happens between now and then, she's she's got a very, very good chance of winning that. And that, as you said a moment ago, Sonia, will go with the grain of what we traditionally expect parties that lose elections to do. It's actually quite rare that they uh, rationally take stock and think, well, why did we lose? Why don't people like us? Very often they double down on the self-same reasons that they lost, right? And in that sense, that enhances Braverman's chances, let's be honest. Yeah. No, I think it does. And there's a couple of things that contribute to that dynamic. So back when MPs used to have most of the say in both parties, actually, in selecting leaders in opposition, you used to have parliamentary parties after an, a general election defeat that were smaller in number and therefore would be to the left of, to the, or to the right of where the party was, where it was in government, in parliament. Now, I think you've got members selecting leaders and that contributes to that trend even more. So that happened in, in the late Labour Party post said Meliband. It's now a feature of Conservative uh, Party leadership elections as well, where two candidates go forward to the members. It gives the members a huge amount of power and members tend to be to the left and to the right of even where a post-election defeat parliamentary party is. There's an interesting question here, which is that, I mean, Kemi Badnock's politics are different from Suella Braverman's in the sense yeah. that Kemi Badnock um, is more sort of libertarian and more kind of free, classically free market in her outlook. But on the so-called culture wars, nonetheless, there is something of an intersection, quite a substantial intersection between them. I mean, that's certainly um, the, the image that Kemi Badnock presented in the last Tory leadership election, right? So on that basis, whatever happens, the Tory party will stay well right of centre and is likely to move even further to the right. And that brings me to a question, which is that, which is the question of whether we see any sign of a pushback against that, right? Traditionally, if a party was moving in a, in a certain political direction, because the two main parties at Westminster are, are coalitions of views, you would expect an, a, a very clear alternative to arise to that. Even if it was going to lose, you would expect some opposition to be voiced. And I don't see it in the Conservative Party. Do you, David? Uh, no, not very strongly. Most of those who would have been providing that pushback are now doing other things and you know, appearing on 
Guardian podcasts and stuff like that. <laughs> Rather than you shouldn't be here, I agree. That's a direct consequence of Brexit, right? So yeah. lots of very sensible MPs were driven out of the party by Brexit. It has left the Conservative Party in a worse place, I think. Well, definitely the, the balance. I mean, of course, I'm going to agree with you that, that, that <laughs> the absence of people like me, that's, that's what's really wrong with the Conservative Party. But, but clearly the balance of the, of, of the party has changed. Also, the party membership is very strong. There are some sort of notable exceptions. There are people like Caroline Noakes and Tobias Elwood who are sort of pretty brave, but you know, my goodness, they have to put the sort of tin hat on. But yeah, there's a real problem uh, for conservatives to do that. But there's a, there's a gaping hole, I think, in British politics of that sort of more liberal minded, yes, centre right, but a liberal centre right viewpoint. And the Conservative Party doesn't really represent that. The, some of it is a little bit muted at the moment because I think most of the kind of liberal centre-right view says, look, Rishi Sunak is as good as we're going to get for a while. Let's not make waves. Let, let's not make his job any more difficult than it already is and, and just try to help him do as well as possible at the next general election. So I think that's the thinking at the moment. But if he goes then, you know, really it has to be gloves off for the fight of the soul of the Conservative Party. And I'm I'm not very optimistic, but, you know, at that point, you know, if you're not making a stand then, then you just might as well give up. That's fascinating. So you think come the next Conservative leadership election, which, let's be honest, is, is likely to happen after um, an election defeat next year, that will be the last chance really to arrest this passage to the hard political right. And in all likelihood, let's be honest, that, that attempt won't work. And the Conservative Party, for a long time, um, will be locked into a politics that you find pretty distasteful. That's what's going to happen. I think that's probably right. I mean, nothing is forever. And, yeah, there were people who said, oh, the Labour Party was lost under Corbyn and, and it moved relatively quickly. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the Conservative Party has been on a trajectory for some time. And if it moves to the right you know, next next time round, even further to the right, it's quite hard to see. You know, what point does it come back without at least one more crushing election defeat? I know Angela Rayner at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday did make reference to the National Conservatism Conference, but the, the Conservative Party endlessly beats up the Labour Party about. Um, the elements of the Labour Party that are supposedly extreme, right? They still cite Jeremy Corbyn as an attack line against Starmer. But I haven't heard Starmer say to Rishi Sunak yet, look what you are incubating in your party. Look how horrible these very visible elements of modern conservatism have become. Do you think that's strange, David? It does seem a bit mystifying to me. Well, I, I wonder whether that is because um, Keir Starmer is very focused on the Red Wall. And that, that actually some of the, some of the attitudes there might be quite popular amongst people he's trying to win back to the Labour Party. You know, a, I, feel, I feel there's a moral duty on a mainstream politician uh, well, yeah, no, to I'm, call I'm, this stuff out. I'm, well, I'm not disagreeing with you, uh, on that, but I, if you ask after an explanation as to why Keir Starmer doesn't really go on this is because he doesn't want to fight on cultural grounds. He wants to talk about living standards, public services and so on. Someone in mainstream politics, though, Sonia, has to do it, don't they? I mean, this stuff does need calling out. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you on stuff like immigration. The, the, the tricky thing is, is that it's as David says, Labour absolutely wants the next election to be about the economy and public services. 
And I guess there is a risk that if you start responding to this stuff directly, that's what comes to dominate our politics instead. And it's trickier territory for them. Yeah, but also also if you don't call it out, it becomes normalised. It becomes part of the discourse. Well, yes, I I think it's yes. I, I, I do tend to agree with you on that, although I also think that there's an argument that some of this stuff is just so kind of awful and beyond the pale and it gets an audience on Twitter. But, you know, do we really need this dominating prime minister's question, say, or like mainstream news bulletins? I mean, you can argue, well, the fact that it's being talked about at this conference means that it will be sort of piercing public perceptions to some extent. But I still think most people in the country wouldn't have a clue about this conference or the fact that it's happening. Let us hope. And let's hope a few of them tune into this podcast and perhaps find out just how awful it is. And on, and on that note of qualified optimism, we will bring things to a close. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review. One more thing before you go. If you subscribe to our newspapers today, that's the print product, you can save up to 50%. Enjoy reading our award-winning newspapers and magazines every week. The offer ends on Sunday the 21st of May 2023. You can search Guardian Newspaper Subscription to subscribe today. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Thank you.